I have the pleasure of launching our day, and I have uh, the opportunity to speak to you about a biblical view of work. And I want to focus particularly on a historic understanding of the doctrine of vocation. How many of you have ever heard of the doctrine of vocation? Just raise your hand. Good, a good number of you. It's been my experience, though, that the majority of Christians I encounter have absolutely no familiarity with the biblical doctrine of vocation. In our generation, it's time that we were rediscover or discover this great doctrine that was really formulated by the Reformers. And so this morning, I want to walk you through really a historic understanding of this great doctrine with some points of application, both by examples from history, but also uh, in our own current lives. And each of the speakers today will begin to, to build on this by illustrating through their own life and testimony and biblical principles uh, how we can be faithful in our generation. When I think historically, first of all, I think of the major errors that our world has gone through, particularly in the last three to 400 years. The period that we would recognize is uh, the same period of the modern missions movement. The last three to 400 years where we've really seen the gospel uh, extended around the globe in obedience to Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I think of the period of colonization. And it was in this period that we saw Christians following the trade routes that were established by those who were conducting business and trade as they went out uh, and explored the world. But Christians fell immediately into the wake of the explorers with the intention and purpose to bring the gospel. But if it hadn't been for those who were involved in trade and exploration, those pathways would not have been presented to faithful Christians at that time. Matter of fact, many Christians in that period of colonization would arrive in a port city that was a, a hub of trade, and they themselves will begin to employ some kind of business endeavor or professional practice to sustain themselves while they were doing the work of the ministry. Later, as we moved uh, into the 1700s and, and early 1800s, we entered into a period of industrialization. And during this period, we saw Christians who were at the forefront of major legal, uh, I'm sorry, major industries such as uh, the law professions, uh, such as business, such as healthcare, and so forth. And Christians in all these fields came together in this period of industrialization to look at the issue of just practices in factories. This was the period where we saw Christians lead uh, and champion the defense of children. The child labor laws were formulated by Christians. Uh, the defense of women who were working in factories at, at great personal risk to their own health and lives. It was Christians who advocated on their behalf. As in this period, we saw the Sunday school movement develop because children were still working and the only day that they could learn to read and write was on Sunday morning prior to church. So we saw Christians faithfully working in the period of industrialization leading up to the later 1800s, which launched then uh, into the 20th, 20th century what we would term uh, an era of urbanization. And this great urbanization wasn't just localized in North America, but was global in extent. We saw people leaving the rural communities, the villages, coming into the urban centers. This provided really strategic opportunities for educators and, and business professionals and so forth who are believers to embrace those new immigrants into the city and to use that as an opportunity to reach them with the gospel. <clears throat> Today we live in a period that's been described as globalization. Our generation, in my opinion, and, and others, is one of the most strategic times to see the gospel advanced. Every industry represented in the room today provides an opportunity. If it's not a colleague in the cubicle next to you, it might be you going on a plane to attend a conference internationally or actually formulating a contract with international partners. We just think multinationally today in every industry. And God has brought the nations right into the proximity of our own personal lives. And our generation has an opportunity to extend the gospel in ways that we've never imagined before. You add to that technology and media and so forth. It's a great time to be alive as a believer. It's not an easy time. And I don't think it will get any easier for us. And we need to encourage one another to this end. But what was it that motivated Christians throughout this season to live a life of faithfulness uh, in their professional context and to steward those contexts for the gospel? It was the development of thought that began first with the reformers and the teaching of the priesthood of all believers that every calling is a noble calling, an opportunity to glorify God and to use it as a platform to live a godly life as a testimony unto him. 
Over the years, and particularly entering into the period of colonization and, and the extension of uh, the modern missions movement, this doctrine of vocation came to inform what has been called the Puritan work ethic. This Puritan work ethic really was the cornerstone of civilization. This is where a person who's redeemed by God has repented of living their life for just personal self-interest and now lives their life for the good of the neighbor and the glory of God. See, that infuses your work with a completely different and radically uh, change of perspective than the unbeliever. An unbeliever will do good work. They might even pursue excellence in the workplace. But see, their core interest is self-interest. But you and I have been set free from self-interest that we might love and serve our neighbor. That means your approach to work or your industry means you're looking that the product you produce or the quality of instruction you provide as a teacher or uh, your commitment to, to biblical ethics in law enforcement and justice means you're looking out for the good of your neighbor. And this has been the cornerstone of Western civilization. Sadly, that's beginning to be challenged in our own society. But there are places around the world who are eager to employ these kinds of ethics and principles. You'll hear this testimony from some of our speakers in countries that were dominated by philosophies like communism, where they reaped the results of that secular humanistic philosophy, they're eager for something that is sound and true. And many of us have had opportunities to take our professions into places like that and begin to teach these principles. People are searching for the truth. They've reaped the results of these false ideologies and philosophies. And so we have the occasion as we encounter the nations in the workplace to actually share these biblical principles and often we'll find them to be more receptive than we find even in our own American colleagues. This is a great, great day to be alive. So I hope that whets your appetite for what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to begin uh, now just to share with you some first principles. Some first principles there's some wonderful books, and I'll put up a bibliography at the end of my presentation, uh, that you can study these themes and these first principles uh, more carefully and closely, and I hope you become a student uh, of this theme and, and these issues. But we need to take into consideration, first of all, that man's chief aim in work is to glorify God. That's why we're on the planet. And we need to apply that conviction, that principle, to the work that we do as well. Why is this important? Because most of us live in a society, if you want to characterize it by the philosophy of of pursuing the American dream, that we live for ourselves, or we live for the weekend, or or we strive to do our very best to increase our retirement account so that we can retire and go and have fun and to relax and, and to play. See, work becomes a place where we can glorify God. This is our chief aim. It's also important to recognize that the scriptures teach us that work is not a result of the fall. Believe it or not, many believers actually have embraced this kind of thinking. But work is not a result of the fall. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you discover that our God is characterized by work, the work of creation. And as he created this universe, he looked on it and said, it is good. And then he rested on that Sabbath day. Part of being made in the image of God is understanding that God created us to work. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, we see very clearly uh, when he mentions that we were made in the image of God, that we are also appointed to rule over this earth. He gives us a mandate there that instructs us to rule over over the earth in such a way that we represent his character. This is a benevolent Uh, delegated authority that he gives to us to care and to tend for the earth and to reap the benefits of what God has invested in this earth. And as we do that, again, not for self-interest, but for the glory of God and for the benefit of others, we have a chance to put on display the attributes that characterize our Father. He's a loving and gracious and just and good God. He's merciful. And so we have that occasion to practice the image of God in our approach to work. It is the case that as a result of the fall and the curse, that work became more difficult. And now work was going to be characterized by uh, the sweat of the brow, contending with the thorns uh, that grow up uh, in the field. That's, of course, an agricultural reference. All of us can point to thorns we encounter, don't we? We live in the context of working with unbelievers, most of us, 
And they're going to make choices that are not consistent with our values, not loving choices towards us. They're going to be self-interested and self-seeking, uh, even in their altruistic efforts. And so we encounter these thorns. It makes work difficult. But let's not lose sight that work is of God. It's part of being an image bearer. We also derive from the scriptures that our particular vocations, being your calling and my calling, that's what the word vocation means, are sacred if God is sovereign. Think about that for a moment. The scriptures teach us that he created each of us uniquely. He ordained every day of our life, the psalmist tells us. That means we have a different set of life experiences, educational experiences, family experiences, cultural experiences. Uh, We have diversity in talents and abilities that were cultivated in us by our parents and teachers, hobbies, also spiritual gifts. All of those are ordained uniquely to a person. And God, as he rules over history, has appointed you to steward all that he's invested in your life for the honor of his name. Now that makes life exciting, because then you look at your life and say, all right, Lord, what's in the toolbox? What have you given me today? And how can I use it in a meaningful fashion? We also understand from the scriptures that work is God's assigned sphere for gospel witness. See, if God is sovereign and he's ordained for you to be an accountant or a public school teacher, if he's truly sovereign, then that is the sphere that God has assigned for you from eternity past. Now that brings greater meaning to whatever it is that you apply your hand to today, this week, and in the future. And it is the case, as we look at our society and and the economy, uh, the studies have been done, every adult now uh, faces at least the opportunity probably to have seven different career changes in their lifetime. That might be an anxious thought for you. Some of us have lived through some of those transitions. But if you're confident in the sovereignty of God, and you know that he's just appointed you to serve him in the next sphere of influence, then you can step forward in that with great courage, with great hope, great confidence. We don't need to be characterized by anxiety or fear. We have a God who knows us intimately. He created us uniquely. He loves us. And he's got a a mission for us to accomplish. If that is the case, that in these unique spheres of influence, we have a duty. And that is to live a holy and sanctified life, to put him on display If you study the scriptures, you'll discover that the greater purpose of sanctification is that we might imitate Christ, that we are reconciled image bearers. What was marred by the fall, we've been set free of seeking our own interests, and now we can live a life of of love. That's what Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, that we have now been set free, but don't use your freedom for what? Yourself, but use your freedom now to love and to serve others. And we carry that into the marketplace, and it makes our testimony something that is radically different than our colleagues. Because God has set us free from that self-interest. But, but a sanctified life, a reconciled image bearer, is one who is illustrating the attributes of God in their life. As I said earlier, his communicable attributes, his justice, his mercy, his love, his compassion, his kindness, truth, the willingness to extend forgiveness, and make peace with others. This is the sanctified life. Now you live that way in the context of your work environment or the other duties and roles the Lord has assigned to you. It might be being a coach to your kid's soccer team. It might be a mom who's a member of the PTA. All of those roles that the Lord has assigned it are opportunities to live out a sanctified life. And when we do that, we shine as a bright light. And we'll see that in just a few moments from the scriptures. And finally, by way of first principles that I want you to consider, the workplace then is the primary environment for believers where truth and lies intersect. We're people of the word, people who understand because our eyes have been illumined that that truth exists. And there are people who are roaming in darkness who believe the lies of Satan, however they've been perpetuated, whatever philosophy, whatever strategy, whatever agenda, whatever has been marketed, uh, by, way, by way of philosophy in our culture. These are people who are trapped and enslaved to these lies, and they're going to fight hard to advocate these lies. But we who pursue truth and live lives of truth and communicate principles of truth have the chance to counteract those lies 
and bring people into an understanding with the work of the Holy Spirit of recognition of the ultimate truth. What a privilege it is, my friends, to be God's ambassadors in the workplace. Don't ever take it for granted. Don't ever think that it's less than noble or sacred calling or endeavor. Just be faithful to these first principles. Now, I have a PowerPoint presentation that's pretty heavy in content. I did it on purpose because I want to share this with you. So if you'd like my PowerPoint presentation, don't even worry about trying to capture all the notes. Just write down a few thoughts that kind of register with you. But if you'll leave your business card, or if you will go to our website, TMAI, and where it says uh, info at TMAI, just email me and ask for my PowerPoint. I'll, I'll share it with you gladly, okay? So now you can relax and just process uh, kind of the flow of thought with me as we study this great doctrine of vocation. I'll direct your attention to the screens uh, for most of this. I want to begin, first of all, by acknowledging this observation from Alvin Schmidt. It says, the careful researcher will find that all major fields of law, medicine, education, politics, and the arts were advanced most significantly by Christians who understood that knowing Christ had compelling and practical implications for their life's work. Alvin Schmidt reveals in his book, Under the Influence, How Christianity Transformed Civilization, how the radical nature of the Christian faith as a shaping force has knit the moral fabric and inspired the highest achievements of Western civilization with untold benefits to the entire world. Specifically, he says this, On the basis of historical evidence, I am fully persuaded that had Jesus Christ never walked the dusty paths of ancient Palestine, nor had he suffered, died, and risen from the dead, and never assembled around him a small group of disciples who spread out into a pagan world, the West would not have attained its high level of civilization, giving it the many human benefits it enjoys today. Cornelius Plantinga, who served as president of Calvin College and Theological Seminary, in his book, Engaging God's World, A Christian Vision of Faith, Learning, and Living, says this, God uses other institutions and groups to do some of the business of the kingdom, and Christians play their role in all of them. For instance, God uses industries to generate goods and services, hospitals to care for the hurt and sick, schools to educate intellectual seekers, and when we open our eyes, we'll find faithful Christians seeking to extend God's sovereignty in every country, in every precinct of life, including such tough precincts as advertising, journalism, university education, and the military. Building on this thought, Gene Veith in his book, God at Work, which is in your gift bags today, said this, vocation has become just another common term for job. As in vocational training or vocational education, the term, though, is a theological word, reflecting a rich body of biblical teaching about work, family, society, and the Christian life. R.W. Forrester, writing on this topic, he's a professor at St. Andrews University, and his book is entitled Christian Vocation Studies in Faith and Work, said this, This idea of vocation, or the calling, has no more than the name in common with that which is called so today. You've heard the term vocational education, vocational training. This is what they're pointing to. We use it in such a fashion that is is diminished from its historic uh, meaning and context. He goes on to say, the idea of the calling has been degraded so disgracefully, it is something quite trivial. It has been denuded of its daring and liberating religious meaning to such an extent and has been made so ordinary and commonplace that we might even ask whether it would be, not be better to renounce it altogether. He goes on to say, though, on the other hand, it is a concept which in its scriptural sense is so full of force and so pregnant in meaning, it gathers up so clearly the final meaning of God's act of grace, the calling, and the concrete character of the divine command in view of the world in which man has to act, that to renounce this expression would mean losing a central part of the Christian message, We must not throw it away, but we must regain its original meaning. Gene Veith, again, building on this thought, says the term vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. The doctrine of vocation is thoroughly biblical, as shall be seen, but as with other scriptural teachings, it surfaced and was developed with its greater rigor during the Reformation. I want to read a text of scripture to you. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
And I'll begin reading in verse 17. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised, meaning he was Jewish? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, meaning a Gentile? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, legally, what he means, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave or bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And then he says in verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Look at this text, we discern that Paul uses the word call, or the Greek word is klesis, in two different ways in this text. One is the call to fellowship with Christ, a call that meets people in diverse circumstances of life, as unmarried, as married or unmarried, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised. The other identifies these circumstances as callings, the constitutive features of a life that the Lord has assigned. <coughs> Thinking about this text of Scripture uh, and this reality of how the text of Scripture uses the Greek word calling in two different fashions, we begin to understand how the Reformers begin to articulate this doctrine of vocation. Doug Sherman, in his book, Vocation, Discerning Our Callings in Life, begins with this observation. He says, in the Bible, vocation has two primary meanings. The first and by far more prevalent meaning is the call to become a member of the people of God and to take up the duties that pertain to membership. The Puritans referred to this as God's general calling. Luther referred to it as God's spiritual calling, or vocatio spiritualis. This calling is a heavenly calling, a holy calling, according to 2 Timothy 2.9. It, it is the call all Christians have in common, a call to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Sherman goes on, saying the second meaning of this term in the Greek, is God's diverse and particular callings. These are the special tasks, the offices, or places of responsibility within the covenant community and in the broader society. Luther referred to this as God's external calling, or the vocatio externa. The Puritans referred to it as God's particular calling. So do you understand the difference, the general calling and the particular calling? What's the general calling? It's the call to salvation and faith in Christ. We all share that in common. That's why it's general or common to all of us. But our particular and unique callings assigned by God refer back to this this confidence in God's sovereignty and his purpose for each and every one of our lives. Gordon Smith, also writing on this subject in his book, Courage and Calling, says, The Reformer's notion of the priesthood of all believers by no means denigrated the pastoral office, as is often assumed. Rather, it taught that the pastoral office is a vocation. It is a calling from God with its own responsibilities, authority, and blessings. The call to be a pastor is a noble calling. It's a high calling. And I know you feel like I do uh, about my pastor, to honor him, to bless him, to trust him, to follow his example and his leadership, to support him. It is a high calling. But this teaching on the priesthood of all believers Okay? And let's put it into historical context. What was the reality of the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation? You had a class system in place. You had the priests or the clergy and the lay people or the peasants. And it was an abusive system. Here, unredeemed priests were using their position of power and authority for, for personal gain, exploiting, frankly, extorting the parishioners financially to be afforded the, the means of grace for some measure of forgiveness by God. Luther addresses certainly the the doctrine of soteriology, the issue of justification, getting the gospel right, but he also confronts this fault within the church, that this is not what God ordained for the body of Christ. 
There is a particular calling for a pastor, or in his case, a priest. But there's also a particular and a noble or sacred calling for the layperson. And this led to the development of the teaching of the priesthood of all believers. So looking at Smith's comment again, he says, the reformer's notion of the priesthood of all believers by no means denigrated the pastoral office as is often assumed. Rather, it taught that the pastoral office is a vocation, a calling from God with its own responsibilities, authority, and blessings. We affirm that. But it also taught that lay people as well have vocations, callings of their own that entail holy responsibilities, authorities, and blessings of their own. Plantinga, again, builds on this. He says, The priesthood of all believers did not make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. Every kind of work, including what had heretofore been looked down upon, the work of peasants and craftsmen. This is an occasion for priesthood, for exercising a holy service to God and to one's neighbor. If you go back and read Calvin on this theme, he often would use the example of how a cobbler, a humble cobbler, can glorify God. Think about it as a business person. A cobbler conducts a trade or a service for his neighbors or those who live or reside in his village. Now, a person can come to a cobbler and have their shoe repaired. And now the cobbler faces a choice, several choices. One, will I do my work with excellence and thoroughness so that the fee that is paid is worthy of the work that is done? And I have my client's best interest in mind, so that means I'm going to do my work well. So that this pair of shoes serves them as long as possible. Okay? I'm not going to try to cheat them on the quality of my work so they have to continue to return to pay me. Okay? Then he charges a fair price. He understands the economic context, what those around him, if they can benefit from his service, can afford to pay. He doesn't seek to extract more than is necessary or required to meet his own needs and to support his own industry and effort. And so we come into the issue of pricing and value as a believer. And there are many, many other examples of this. But Calvin taught these principles in a very particular applied fashion to his congregation. And we'll see one of the examples in just a moment. But I want to remind you again at this point, it was also the Reformers and later the Westminster Divines uh, as a group of the Puritans who authored the Westminster Catechism And the very first question they pose and ask is this, what is the chief aim of man? Sorry, I skipped a slide. It's okay. The chief aim of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is derived from many texts, but particularly 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. How does a cobbler do his work for the glory of God? He does it with a set of values entrenched in his heart, biblical ethics and convictions that inform his choices in how he conducts his business. And that's true for every one of us in the work that the Lord's assigned. Well, let me give you that example and a few others. My friend Rob Provost is in the room, and I credit him with sharing this with me. Many years ago, we were in Geneva uh, visiting our friend John Glass. Some of you are familiar with their ministry there. And Rob said, We need to go downtown Geneva and we need to visit the Philippe Patak, uh, I always get that backwards, Rob. Where are you? I can't afford these watches. Thank you, Patak Philippe watches. Here we are, downtown Geneva, Switzerland, going to the Patak Philippe watch uh, offices, and they have a museum there. And Rob said, let's go on the tour. And there was a docent who walked us through and showed us some of the most magnificent timepieces ever designed or created by man. And you ask yourself, what country in the world is known for manufacturing the most sophisticated, sophisticated, competent, and elegant timepieces? Switzerland, that's their reputation. Now they're getting a, a run for their money from Japan and other places today. But historically, it was Switzerland who is recognized worldwide as producing the finest watches. As we conducted this tour and looked at these timepieces, the docent took us over to one particular case. She said, I want to show you something special. She says, in this case, you're looking at at one of the earliest watches ever produced in Switzerland. And it was a watch that was constructed by the French Huguenots. The French Huguenots are a group of Protestant believers who, after the Edict of Fountainebleau 
1685 was issued in France, establishing Catholicism, again, as a state religion, experienced persecution at the hand of the state. And the Huguenots left all their homes, their belongings, their trades, took their families, and many of them, over 500, fled to Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin was preaching. These Huguenots sat under the very teaching that I referred to before as far as the priesthood of all believers and this doctrine of vocation. The Huguenots had to support themselves, and many of them adopted the trade of watchmaking. But they brought to that trade the same convictions and principles of applying excellence, love, care for their neighbor to make sure that the product they produced was quality and, and met the needs of those who had purchased that product. Here we are, 2000, it's probably about 2012 at that time. Rob and I are standing and looking at a French Huguenot timepiece. And the docent said this. She said, it's because of the French Huguenots' commitment to designing timepieces that the industry of watchmaking in Switzerland was grounded on the principles of excellence. Here's Christians who are doing their work for the glory of God, the benefit of their neighbor, and an entire industry gained national recognition over the centuries because of their commitment to the principles we're studying today. From a different field, uh, many of us are not involved in watchmaking, but whatever industry you are as far as manufacturing that could apply to you, I want to talk to you about the industry of music. Give you an example for those of you who uh, find their vocation in this realm. George F. Handel, we would all recognize as the author of, I think, one of the greatest gospel uh, musical pieces ever written, and that is the Messiah. We've all sang it, we've heard it, we celebrate it annually, often at Christmas time or at Easter. But you may not know the story of Handel. He was originally from Germany, but he relocate, relo, excuse me, relocated to London. He translated the Messiah into English, but it had never been performed in English. At the same time, there was a ministry that had developed. It was actually the first orphanage in Great Britain. There's a large number because of industrialization of, of children who had lost their parents uh, to poverty and to the hard working conditions who lived on the streets of London. And so the Foundling Hospital uh, was established uh, in this area of London. And the Foundling Hospital, uh, started by believers, uh, out of compassion for, for children, for orphans, were looking for ways to fund their enterprise. What they decided to do was to invite uh, leading artists uh, in the region of London to uh, exhibit their works on the walls of the Foundling Hospital, and they would charge uh, an exhibit fee to come in and to view these works. And the artists, believing in the cause, donated their works to be viewed. Well, one of the projects that they were most interested in doing was constructing a chapel on the grounds of the Foundling Hospital. They wanted there to be a place where these children were taught the Word of God. And so they approached Handel and said, would you be willing to perform a piece of music so that we could invite guests to come and they would contribute to the building of this chapel? It was the Messiah that Handel chose for the first English premiere presentation of this piece of music uh, to be led by himself. He conducted the Messiah there uh, at the Foundling Hospital. It became such a success and so popular, he went on to do this for 16 years. And it was the English version of the Messiah that came into the broader repertoire of the English-speaking world as a result of Handel taking his gifts and talents in the area of music, but offering them up as a gift to advance the cause of gospel ministry in the lives of these orphans in London. My friends, we have so many gifts and talents that if we're prayerful, we're watchful, and we're available, that we can give or invest or employ in ways that advance gospel ministries, not just in the context of our work environment, but to come alongside faith-based ministries, missions endeavors, and things like this uh, to advance the cause of Christ. Let me give you an example uh, from missions history. This example is the story of Anthony Norris Groves, uh, if you were to read his biography, it's actually entitled The Father of Faith Missions. You can see the cover of the book there. I was not familiar with Anthony Norris Groves until a few years ago when I found this book uh, in the bookstore here at Grace Church. And I've been teaching missions for many years, even history of missions, and I thought, how could I not have heard of the Father of Faith Missions? And I discovered a wonderful testimony 
of this man named Anthony Groves, who was a dentist in Great Britain. And he lived at a time in Great Britain when there was no social welfare system. There was no kind of uh, policy or, or structure within society that cared for the poor. And you had to provide for yourself, and not just yourself, your children, but future generations. But Groves, as part of his Bible study, and begin to study the scripture text, uh, the scripts, uh, the text of scriptures. Excuse me. Particularly asking the question, what is a biblical view of wealth and money, and how should we employ our resources uh, in a way that's consistent with what we find uh, in Scripture? Groves was so convicted in his study of the Scriptures that he authored a pamphlet entitled Christian Devotedness. Christian Devotedness. You see the cover there. It's available on Amazon. You can buy it for about $2 today. And it's a very biblical treatment of how a believer should view their financial resources. The reason this was necessary at that point in history, and particularly in British culture, is because there was no social services and welfare system in place, what was happening is Christians were fixated society at large, but Christians as well, were fixated on hoarding their financial resources to pass on as an inheritance to the next generation. But what Groves observed is it was producing generations of Christians who really did not live a life of faith and dependency on God. Their hope was on the inheritance that was being accumulated for them. He also observed that these financial resources weren't being made available for gospel ministry. As he authored this pamphlet, it began to get a very broad readership. Groves was so convicted, even as he read this, uh, that he began to invest his own gifts uh, and his own resources. He was very faithful to the principles uh, where he was called as a husband and father to provide for his family. Okay? But the extravagance of wealth, and particularly the heart of greed and hoarding, is what he was confronting. At first, it wasn't a popular message. He challenged uh, contemporary thought. But again, the power of God's word began to inform a generation of missionaries who began to go out in faith, trusting God to provide. He chose to do so himself. He actually took his dentist practice. He brought along another surgeon, and he built a missionary team, and they actually served as the first missionary team to modern-day Baghdad. It's a great, great story. He traverses the entire continent, he actually flew up, not flew up, he sailed up to St. Petersburg uh, in Russia, picked up some more team members, and then they traveled across the entire continent to get all the way down to the Middle East and eventually to Baghdad. It's an epic story, a lot of adventures along the way. He and his sons eventually ended up in India where they also started certain industries to support themselves and the national believers uh, and disciples uh, that came to faith and to undergird their mission enterprise. Why is he termed the father of faith missions? You can't see it on the slide, but there's a tree on the cover of that book, and in the circles on that tree are very famous names, such as Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd, Amy Carmichael, Jim Elliott. And the legacy of this little pamphlet, Christian Devotedness, is what influenced the modern faith missions movement both where God's people became generous in their gifts to support missionaries, and missionaries gave up, if you will, the security of their own uh, earnings so that they could go out in faith and be supported by individuals and trust God in that regard. It's a really, really wonderful story, but I can't leave it without telling you one more feature of it. There was a gentleman in his Bible study as he began to do the study and began to pray and dialogue on these issues. This gentleman actually married Grove's sister. It's a gentleman who is heralded throughout history because of his walk of faith. That man was George Mueller, who founded extensive orphanage ministries built on this principle of trusting that God would provide if you walk by faith and obedience. It's a wonderful story. I, I recommend it to you. A more contemporary example, uh, not immediately, but here in America, would be the story of Milton S. Hershey, all of us are familiar with Hershey chocolate, right? Some of us have even been to Hersheytown in Pennsylvania and gone through the museum and, and studied that. You may or may not know that Milton Hershey was a committed believer. Milton Hershey, at a time of industrialization, realized that there were 
sinful practices that were being conducted in the context of industries. And he felt convicted that if I'm going to own a company that manufactures a product, then everything I do in this company has to be governed by biblical thinking. He he wanted to shape a culture that reflected Christ, if you will, as an extension of his own influence and leadership. At a time where people suffered the travails of hardship and unjust practices in factories, Hershey made his factories the safest places to work. And not only that, but on the campus of his factory, he actually built medical clinics to meet the needs of his workers, because there was no such thing as you know, uh, common uh, medical care or health care or health care insurance at the time. So he looked out for the needs, not only of his employees, but their families, to the extent that he actually began to construct uh, affordable housing for his employees there actually on the campus of the Hershey Chocolate Factory. Today, it's known as Hershey Town. It's one of the first planned communities in America with regard to uh, an environment that's safe for families. He went on to, to build schools on this campus, to provide good education, and even constructed a, a home for orphan boys and then gave them scholarships to go on for university education. See, Milton Hershey faced a choice. He could have been a successful chocolate manufacturer and taken all the proceeds and earnings and used them for his own personal benefit. He could have bought yachts. He could have traveled broadly. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. That's the case. But this mentality, this this unbelieving secular mentality of living and, and doing your work for yourself to gain as much personal benefit, he rejected. And he took his profits and earnings and reinvested them in the lives of his employees. And he created a culture that put on display a servant's heart, which gave him a platform to talk about Christ. And many came to faith through the testimony of Milton Hershey in working with his employees. There are other stories. Uh, I might mention J.C. Penney as an example. Some of you know the J.C. Penney brand. Penney founded his first company uh, based on the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. And this idea, even though it wasn't robust theologically, was this idea of if you're going to provide a service, you do it in the best interest of your neighbor. He had learned that principle early in Sunday school, but he would admit he was not a believer. He has an interesting conversion story. He came to faith at the height of the Depression. His company was very successful, but he lost everything. At that time, he lived in New York City. He had accumulated a great amount of wealth. His company failed, but he still had a significant personal earnings portfolio. But Hirsch, uh, I'm sorry, Penny was walking the streets of New York one day, and you imagine these scenes that you've seen from historic archives during the depression of the soup lines. He encountered one of those soup lines that was lined out outside of the New York rescue mission. And it just broke his heart as he saw these people who were hungry and without employment. But more than that, he wondered what was motivating these people at the New York rescue mission. And he went in and he heard the gospel. And not long after, he submitted his life to Christ. J.C. Penney began to then invest in the New York Rescue Mission. He eventually relaunched the Penny Company, which we now shop at today, J.C. Penney's. So God blessed that early work, but he began to give more away. As a matter of fact, when J.C. Penney died, his estate and his home in New York City was bequeathed to the New York Rescue Mission for the purpose that gospel ministry would continue. Unfortunately, J.C. Penney was influenced by some liberal theologians at that time towards the end of his life. I don't hold him up as an example of solid theology and doctrine. But he is a man who tried to live out his faith prior to those influences uh, in an obedient fashion. Another example might be R.J. Letourneau. R.J. Letourneau is known as uh, a leading individual in the manufacturing of large earth-moving machinery. You can see there uh, that in his career, He developed these tools and these machines, and they were used on four continents. He had more than 300 patents to his name and major contributions to road construction and heavy equipment that forever changed the world. Most importantly, his contribution to the advancement of the gospel ranks him among the greatest of Christian businessmen of all time. 
He was famous for living on 10% of his income and giving 90% to the spread of the gospel. Letourneau exemplified what a Christian businessman should be. You can read his biography on the website Giants for God. It's a wonderful story of another Christian who decided, I'm going to approach my industry, not governed by secular values, agendas, the American dream, but what God's word tells me is important. R.J. Letourneau uh, eventually even founded Letourneau University. That's one of the few Christian universities that has as its focus equipping tradespeople, engineers, architects, and so forth. They have a wonderful history. But it's all to be understood in this context, the greater context of what? God's mission, which is this. Acts 1.8 tells us that we are called to be God's witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's why living in in an era of globalization is so remarkable for us to think about the impact that we can have if we're faithful. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, brokers of peace between one kingdom and another kingdom, as though Christ were pleading through us. Now, if we live this kind of sanctified life, what's the fruit? This is the testimony of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify or worship your Father who is in heaven. What's Christ saying? If you live out a holy and sanctified life in the context of the world, the effect can be that people will come to see your Father. You'll shine a bright light. And when I teach on this text, I just remind people in the ancient world there was no electricity. What was the function and purpose of a light or a lamp? Well, they would light this small oil lamp and put it on an elevated lampstand. And what's the immediate effect of a light in the darkness? It removes all the shadows. But what's its purpose? So that it can reveal a safe path. So that you don't stumble or fall or get harmed along the way. My friends, we live in a world where people are blinded. They're in darkness. They are stumbling. They are falling. And our lives, according to Christ, can be like a light elevated on a lampstand that shines brightly and it removes all the shadows, the confusion, and we become a pathway to God himself. Paul builds on this idea in Philippians chapter 2, you know the early part of the text where he says that we are to be like-minded with Christ and as a result we are to live lives of service and humility, even to the point of death. And if you live this kind of life, he says later in the chapter, verses 15 and 16, this will be true. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Do we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Absolutely. These words have never been more true. But this is our hope. If we live this kind of life, we can appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. You want a motivation to get out of bed tomorrow, or let's say Monday? Let this be your motivation, to shine as a bright light. Now, in the few minutes I have left, I just want to emphasize this in an applied way to our context. I'm going to draw on a group of people who are known as the radical reformers, first of all, because there's a principle here I want you to understand. This group was called the Anabaptist. Okay, this was a group who believed that believers' baptism was essential to have a true and sound church. It was actually out of the Anabaptists that a church planting movement was uh, generated that led to the modern missions movement, the Brethren Missions Movement, the Moravians, and so forth. And the Anabaptists believed this, according to John R. Martin. They used the German term, Nachfolge Christe, which is translated following Christ, or came to be uh, put this way, discipleship which was central to their understanding of the Christian life and to their theology. Harold Bender expands on this by saying, in essence, the discipleship which the Anabaptists proclaimed was simply the bringing of the whole life under the lordship of Christ and the transformation of this life, both personal and social, after his image. This is that reconciled image bearing that we talked about. Everything has to be considered. And from this point of view, they subjected not only the church, but the whole social and cultural order to criticism. And here's what's important. They rejected what they found to be contrary to Christ, and they attempted to put into actual practice his teachings as they understood them both ethically and sociologically. 
This is so important. Our own pastor here at Grace Church has taken a stance on the issue of the lordship of Christ. Everything must be brought under the authority of Jesus Christ. See, when you don't, you live a life of dichotomies. Part of your life is surrendered to Christ, and this other part is surrendered to whatever, the values of the world. But Christ says you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, right? And the imagery there is you, on one hand, you have the world and Satan's kingdom, and the other is the kingdom of God and its values. And Christ is saying, as you stand between those two extreme, differing, opposing realities, you have a choice to make. You literally cannot serve both at the same time. You either bow to one, and as you do that, you turn your back on the other. Or you will determine that you will bow to Christ and turn your back on worshiping the world. Too many of us struggle with what we would term a, a, a syncretistic, a blending of a little bit of our cultural values, secular humanistic values, and we see this all the time in our industries in different ways, and biblical values. And those of us in the marketplace or the public square stand right at that intersection. And we face those choices every day. So I want to help you. I want to talk to you about the concept of worldview and ethical dilemmas. If we're going to live a holy and sanctified life and surrender our life to the Lordship of Christ and be his disciples, no hesitation, withholding no commitment on our part, then we have to see more clearly and have discernment where the competition for truth exists. Now let me talk to you about worldview. A worldview is simply this. It's a culture, okay? And in that culture, I'm sorry, a culture is built on a worldview. Upon a its worldview, a culture constructs its values, its institutions such as marriage, family roles, gender roles, class divisions, educational systems, economic systems, legal processes, government policies, social norms. Those are examples of institutions in a culture. And then on that, the most external aspect of that are the aesthetics, architecture, music, arts, entertainment, and so forth. What's essential for you to understand, I'm going to give you a little model here. At the, at the core of every culture is a worldview. You may not be able to see the words at the center, but it says ideology, okay, or cosmology or worldview. This is your core belief system. Is there a God? Is there a creator of the universe? Is there truth? Can it be known? Has it been revealed to us? Your core, value, uh, your core beliefs, then that shapes your values. And depending on what your values are, you're going to approach those institutions, and design them in such a way that represent your values. Okay? Why, in some contexts, are children so easily disposable? Because they don't believe in a creator. They're followers of Islam or Hinduism or whatever else. Okay? But the sanctity of life, that concept, emerges from a biblical worldview that there's a creator and he's created every individual in his image. That, in turn, produced an understanding of the sanctity of every human life. But you go into cultures where that's not the case, their view of children is they're disposable, they're property. That's true of women or, or whatever. Because it goes all the way back to their core belief system, their values, and then their institutions, how they practice their marriages, their educational system, what's available to women and children, and so forth. So you understand the principle. But this is also true in government policies, their view of the legal system, law enforcement, business practice, codes of ethics, and so forth. Okay? Another way to think about it is according to this model. If you think about a worldview as being at the center, think about every industry that's influenced by worldview. There was a point in time in our own history in America where the dominant worldview was a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based worldview. We still have the benefit in our society of those ethics and principles framing out major industries, professions, uh, government offices, policies, and so forth. But my friends, we are watching them erode on such a rapid basis. And a secular, humanistic worldview has now become the dominant worldview. And when you and I get up on Monday and we go to work, that's what we're encountering. Because it's redefining our values and it's redefining our social institutions. Do we need to look any further than the argument over same-sex marriage? Where does that begin? Take God and the Creator and His definition of what a man is and a woman is and what marriage is found in the early pages of Genesis. You abandon that, okay? Everything becomes relative. 
focus on issues of diversity and tolerance in, in a way that is not supported by Scripture. Yes, a love and respect for human beings and, and all those things, but not in what's being proposed today. And now we're watching our own society implode because we are dismantling aggressively the value system that's been in place historically. And there's not a business or industry representative room that's not being touched by those kinds of changes. What are you going to do? Which master will you serve? Okay, that's how practical and serious this issue is. So, just continuing here. A Christian worldview constructs a biblical grid of ethics by which the disciple who is growing in discernment can weigh and measure all areas of life and society against the teachings of Christ. When one is able to observe where lies versus truth frame their beliefs, repentance can occur. And I'm talking about in your life and my life. Where am I still holding on to unbiblical thinking? Because it's the dominant thinking in my industry. I need to discern where that is governed by an unbiblical worldview. So discernment for believers is essential if they're going to live out God's calling uh, in the public arena. When repentance in our own hearts can occur, where we abandon those lies, we edit them out of our own thinking and then our convictions, then holiness can be pursued. This leads to a life of integrity and overcomes the dichotomy by which many Christians live and work today. This means then that we look at the issue of ethics uh, in our own industry and actually ask, in my industry, which ethics are being pursued by my boss, my colleagues, company policy? If I'm a person who is employed by a company, I really have a struggle because I'm trying to work faithfully in that environment, but I have conflict. But those of us who own businesses or industry leaders and have positions of authority also have an opportunity to maintain or establish biblical ethics in the culture of our companies. And this is a really exciting opportunity for Christian entrepreneurs. So as we conclude, let me just remind you what, what the scriptures say. Okay? A call to live out a biblical worldview in the public arena. Peter says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, he's talking to the church here. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles before unbelievers so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is our hope, that until Christ takes us home or he returns, he can look at us and say, well done. We live for the glory of God. These good deeds are our choices that are informed by, by biblical principles and, and holiness so that we live a life of love and service, of mercy, compassion, justice, uh, forgiveness, making peace and faith as we go about our work. Paul says it this way, Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. <laughs> Context here is salvation. Training us to renounce irreligion. This is that editing out and rejecting secular thinking and worldly passions so that we might live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, reflecting God's character. And we await our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I think did an excellent job in his book, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together in illustrating these themes, summarized, I think, uh, the opportunity that is before all of us in our vocations. He said this, the hallmark of Christianity is our separation from the world, our transcendence of its standards, and our performance of something out of the ordinary. May God strengthen each of us to live lives that are out of the ordinary. What the world experiences, what the world pursues, what the world hopes in, it's not what we're called to pursue. It's not what we're called to align our lives with. It's not what we're called to hope for. And doing so, as I said earlier, we trust that our Heavenly Father one day 
can look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to be that kind of believer. Do you? Now, here's the good news. We can't do it in our own strength. And the Lord has provided his Holy Spirit who resides within us and his promises that he will perfect us and complete us and guide us. He's given us his word to instruct us. We're not left on our own to do this because there's no way we could succeed. But God has raised up his body, his word, his spirit to strengthen us that we might be found faithful to this end.